Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, Wild Card Weekend Edition, where we look ahead to the games, look at some of the co- coaching openings, uh, look at a bunch of things going on around the league with my NBC Sports friend Paul Burmeister. And also, we'll be joined later in the show by Rich Eisen of NFL Network to talk all things NFL. And I'm also going to ask him, being a Michigan man, what he thinks about the future of one Jim Harbaugh and whether that future might include the National Football League. But Paul, good to be with you. I, I'm, you know, it's always an interesting time on Black Monday, the day that uh, you know the the axe swing for the axe swings for some coaches and general managers. No different this year. Probably not voluminous the way we might have thought. The Giants, for now at least, have hung on to Joe Judge. We don't necessarily know if there might be a surprise or two. In the next week or so, I'd keep an eye on New Orleans just just to keep an eye on it. I don't know. I'm not predicting anything's going to happen, but I just keep an eye on it. And I I was I think we were all surprised by uh, the fact that the Miami Dolphins fired a coach who, after starting 0 and 7 in 2019, has gone 24 and 18 since despite navigating some very, very difficult waters that included an inconsistent quarterback situation when he arrived, when Brian Flores arrived, and then riding some choppy waters with Tua Tonga-Valoa. That probably was my biggest surprise. Hello, Paul, and give me your take on Brian Flores and the Miami situation. I'll back up to a couple of weeks ago, Peter, and it's... um... I feel somewhat foolish, but I can laugh about it a little bit. I think two weeks ago we were talking about the Dolphins. I said, well, at the very least, you don't have to worry about your coach of the future moving ahead here because they didn't lose in November and December. I mean, in, the, in that sense, it's unprecedented. They let go of a coach. And I know they didn't play a lot of great quarterbacks and a lot of great teams, but shocking, I think beyond surprising, that after they won eight out of nine games, they fired a coach. And I participated in your, in your uh, end-of-the-year awards here in the last couple of days. And I said that he was my coach of the year. I had Brian Flores above everybody else. So uh, this is a shock to me. To me, you make a drastic move like this when your coach is preventing you from being one level up. And I think it's foolish for any team that's 
let's say five and 12 to expect to be 12 and five. But if your owner thinks, okay, this nine and eight team, like the Dolphins, my team that was nine and eight should have been 11 and six, and we're not because of the head coach. If you feel that way, you make the drastic move. Do you really think Brian Flores is the reason they're not better than nine and eight? I would say emphatically no. So that's why it counts as a shock to me. To me, he got them to overachieve after a one and seven start. They were playing with a lot of emotion, some pretty good execution. I think inspiring football in November and December. And this one didn't make any sense to me. Anytime there's a situation like this that everybody in our position say says, what in the world is Stephen Ross doing? What a horrible mistake this is. First thing that comes to my mind is there's a lot bubbling right underneath the surface here. Obviously, you don't fire a guy who finished uh, the end of this season going eight and one with his team. It, it just seems absolutely foolish. And so... I'm waiting to hear the stories. Uh, Jeff Darlington on ESPN on Monday said that his relationship with Tua was virtually non-existent. There was not a lot of trust between coach and quarterback. Um, And look, the only thing that I have viewed as real red flags with with Brian Flores is that he coached there for three years. And I, I might be off by one or two here. But I believe he had three offensive coordinators and five offensive line coaches in that period of time. And, you know, what's the reason for that? What's the reason that, say, Chan Gailey walked out the door? What's the reason, uh, you know, why so many guys go in and out of such important positions? Coordinator, quarterback coach, offensive line coach. Those are the things with the roiling of the positions and the coaches that, you know, basically I look at that and I say, there's something there. I don't know what it is. And I'm not trying to be, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, sweep anything at all under the rug. I'm just, because I don't know what happened in all those individual situations. I just know that, you know, because of the constant churn at quarterback at offensive coordinator, at quarterback coach, at offensive line coach, to me, that stuff leads to a lot of voices saying, what is going on here? So in my opinion, uh, Paul, I think we're going to learn some more in the coming days and weeks that we don't know now about what really was going on in Miami. I think that those are very fair, uh, fair points to bring up, even though the ones I brought up are a little bit on the other side. Just because you win a lot at the end of the season doesn't mean that there is this general nothing to see here, move along. There could be some real issues beneath the surface. And if they are picking head coach over quarterback, I do say that's questionable in this case. I think Tua was encouraging at the end of the season. There's reason to feel like he's moving in the right direction. But if I had to pick one or the other, if it's just about the head coach and quarterback here not having a great relationship, I might have picked the coach instead of the quarterback. What would you do right now if you were in meetings right now with, uh, you know, with Joe Judge, if you're John Mara, if you're Steve Tisch, the owners of the New York Giants, 
you know, it's it's been a disaster there, especially the second half of Judge's year two. Um, you think you'd want to give him one more year? Or would you say, look, there's just too much mayhem. We wanted this to be a stable situation, but it just isn't. They clearly want it to be him, Peter. I mean, everything about what they've done uh, from their leadership says we want Joe Judge to be the coach. Now, what I really want to know, is that because they don't believe in making a change after a short period of time, after only a couple of years? Or are they really seeing things on the field that we're not seeing on Sundays to make them believe this guy has it moving in the right direction? Because just from an educated fan's point of view, I, I kind of line it up to what I just said about the Miami Dolphins. They look to be playing inspired football the last couple of months. A non-playoff team that was playing with fight and execution most of the time. You don't see that with the Giants. And in fact, you don't see anything even close. The last couple of months of their season, and I know they don't have their quarterback, but it's been about double-digit losses and really failing to score double-digit points most of the time. So they want it to be him. If they're in meetings with him, which they are, I'm looking for reasons that I didn't see on the field uh, to believe that he has this team moving in the right direction because everything we saw on game day says that he doesn't. What's so weird is that we're talking about two highly respected members of Bill Belichick's coaching staff in 2018 of the Super Bowl era of the Patriots. Um, two highly respected guys. The one that went 7-1 and one down the stretch this year got fired. The one that went 1-7 and seven down the stretch this year with the worst-looking team in football might be getting retained. It's a weird business, this coaching business. But I'll just say one other thing about the Giants. Uh, the thing that really bothers me, Steve Politi in the Newark Star-Ledger, great columnist for the Star-Ledger and for NJ.com, wrote a great column late in the week last week about a grandmother from Nutley, New Jersey, who finally, she's had season tickets for over 40 years, and she finally has had enough and wrote to John Mara and said, that's it, I'm finished. You know, I'm not going to the game Sunday, blah, 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 blah. And Steve Politi interviewed her, and she was all fire and venom. Uh, and I think that the New York Giants are close to where they were in 1978 when fans were burning their tickets in the parking lot. It'd be pretty hard to burn your tickets now in the parking lot. You'd have to burn your mobile devices <laughs> because there are no more, no more paper tickets. But, um, you know, fans really dissatisfied. That led to the Giants, you know, 40-some years ago getting George Young, which totally turned around, turned the direction of the franchise. And that general manager who's stepping into this job now, everybody said, oh boy, the Giants flagship franchise. The cap is a total mess. They might be the worst team in football. And you've got a coach who, if he comes back, is on the thinnest ice of any coach entering 2022. Not really a desirable job, Paul Burmeister. No, certainly a desirable history, desirable market. And I see plenty of reasons to believe in, in Daniel Jones when he's healthy. I could get on, get on board there. But financially, 
you mentioned a mess. Uh, the roster, not great. So um, you hear New York Giants, you're like, yeah, great gig. But a closer look says, you know what, maybe not. Is there a coaching opening of the six that are out there right now? And I'm assuming that Vegas is going to be, but I think there's an outside shot that Rich Bisaccia will get the job, especially if they were to win uh, one playoff game, let's say. That's an interesting one to monitor, but is there one job that you like right now, Paul, of the six that, that are probably going to be open? The one that intrigues me the most is in Chicago with the Bears because of Justin Fields. I mean, he's such a talent, and I also think he's – it's a little bit like people see him as someone who's not going to pan out, and there are plenty of smart football people who are excited by his potential and think that he would be a reason to take the job. And I go back to what I said a couple of weeks ago, Peter, when we we're talking about potential vacancies. I lined up three or four defensive-minded head coaches who have been head coaches before, failed, and are now back to being coordinators. I'm going to pick one of those guys and line them up. I'd love to see Leslie Frazier go back to Chicago. I mean, aside from the fact that it would just be cool to have a former Bear there, you know, growing up in the Midwest, I remember that 85 team so well. I think that would be fun. But Look at the model he just came from. Sean McDermott, defensive-minded head coach, yeah. runs the defense. He had an offensive coordinator, has an offensive coordinator, that he gave a project of super talented, super young, super raw young quarterback, Josh Allen. He's yours. You call the plays. You work with them. That worked out. So I, I would like to see Chicago have a defensive-minded head coach. Too big of a project. It'll consume too much energy to work with Justin Fields 24-7. I'd like to see a defensive guy get in there, run that side of the ball, find an offensive coordinator like Brian Dable and say, this talented young quarterback is yours. I'm not going to meddle. He is your job 24-7. The offense is yours 24-7. And see if it can work out similar to what we've seen in Buffalo. You know, the one job that really interests me, and I wrote, in Football Morning in America this week about the Denver Broncos, there will not be a team that will be more desperate and more aggressive, I believe, in this offseason than the Denver Broncos, and I'll tell you why. First of all, they have not had five consecutive losing years since the Nixon administration a half century ago, and there is real restlessness not only among uh, the front office, uh, but also the fans. This year, for the first time, you're seeing significant no-shows in Denver, which is really unheard of. That is a loyal fan base. And, so, and, and I also think that they are going to move heaven and earth to finally solve the quarterback problem. I wrote in my column this week that in this century, in the 21 football seasons in this century, the Broncos have had 22 starting quarterbacks. They have got to get off that carousel. Vic Fangio himself in three years had seven. And they have got to get off of that merry-go-round uh, of quarterbacks. And I think you're going to see George Payton, the general manager, make a great offer to either... Seattle for Russell Wilson, to Green Bay for Aaron Rodgers. Or if need be, if need be, although I definitely don't think it would be their first choice, 
to Houston uh, to try to get Deshaun Watson, who obviously has his own problems and is very tarnished and may have to sit some or most of the 2022 season. But I know that there's desperation in Denver and they're going to try every possible uh, way to try to fix that thing. Paul, I did something else in my column this week that I want to discuss with you. You referred to it, and that is uh, you were one of the voters on my uh, on my team, and not on my team, but on my list of awards for the regular season. And I basically was prompted to do this by what Hub Arkish said last week about Aaron Rodgers, which I thought was really uh, disgusting, honestly saying that uh, Rodgers is a bad guy, I'm not voting for him for the MVP, implied that there were others on the list who were not going to vote for, others among the 50 voters, who also were not going to vote for Rodgers because he was a jerk and tested positive and lied about it and everything. And I just, I just, I don't know. To me, that reminded me of the old stories I heard I grew up in Connecticut. My dad got me into being a huge Red Sox fan. My two brothers, we were on the Mason-Dixon line. Red Sox on one side, Yankees on the other. And the Red Sox stunk, but my father loved the Red Sox. He loved Ted Williams. And I always heard growing up, man, the writers hated Ted Williams. They took it out on him. And I looked into it. Ted Williams, perhaps the greatest hitter of all time in baseball, won the Triple Crown twice, and batted 406 in 1941. So 70 years ago, eight, I'm sorry, 80 years ago, Ted Williams batted over 400, the last time in Major League history that a player batted 400 for a full season. In none of those three seasons did Ted Williams win MVP. And wow. so I look back at it, and in 1947, when he won the Triple Crown, there were 24 writers who voted for the MVP and you had to vote one through 10. It isn't like football where you just vote for the winner. You have to vote one through 10. And one writer that year did not vote Ted Williams anywhere between one and 10. And in that year, 1947, he lost the MVP to Joe DiMaggio, total points, 202 to 201. If that one writer had simply voted him ninth, that year, Ted Williams would have won the MVP. But the guy who ignored Ted Williams that year cost him winning an MVP. And it just showed you that in those days, there were some writers who took it out on guys who they didn't like. And that's why this Hub Arkish thing really bothers me. Because it gives all of us a bad name, in my opinion. We should be considering only what somebody does on the field and as a player not what they might have done off the field. Now, you could say that because he didn't get vaccinated and he lied about his, uh, about or misled slash lied people about that, that that's a terrible thing, that's awful, and that should count. Okay, it should count. But anyway, I use that only as a scene setter to explain what I did. I got 36 people including 10 former players who I, whose opinions I respect. Chris Long, uh, Carson Palmer, Carl Banks, Darius Butler. A lot of these guys who 
basically either talk about the game a lot now or who I think recently retired are really, really smart about the game. And then I got 26 members of the media um, to vote. I did not vote. And I asked them to vote for all of the categories. I'm going to release the rest of them next week in my column. But this week, the MVP, here was the vote. Aaron Rodgers, 32 votes. Tom Brady, two. Joe Burrow, two. And although I was surprised that it was such a landslide, I was not surprised Rodgers won. I was surprised it was such a landslide. I was probably a little bit disappointed that Brady and Burrow, because I think those are all really deserving candidates. And, you know, they only comprise four of the 36 votes between the two of them. A, why did you vote for Aaron Rodgers? B, what did you think of the lopsidedness of the total vote? The uh, lopsidedness, I mean, it's interesting, Peter, how there were four other votes, 32 to four. I think his touchdown to interception ratio was 37 to four. So maybe a little foreshadowing there. Uh, but back to your first yeah. question, why did I vote for Aaron Rodgers? Um, I didn't even think it was close. Uh, the only like part that, that took any kind of uh, work or going through or compiling was like listing all the ways he was an A-plus this year. Uh, number one, you go by team wins. They're the number one seed in the NFC. Okay, so you check that box. You go by his individual production. Uh, I believe after week one, it was, like I said, 37 to two, which is unheard of. He was, was around 70% yep. the whole year. Uh, but the biggest part to me was putting your eyes on Aaron Rodgers every single weekend. He not only consistently made the throws he was supposed to, think about all the times because of his next level anticipation and accuracy, he fit a couple in or maybe four or five in every Sunday that you went, wow, that was, that was the exact right read. He threw it at the exact right time and he threw it with the kind of accuracy that just made you kind of laugh. And it wasn't just the intermediate throws that required the velocity. It was the, the touch and feel kind of throws 40 to 50 yards downfield. It was all there. And I, I think it's a super fun conversation about who is next, the runner up. There are four or five deserving people. But when it comes to the MVP, like I really don't even think it was close. I think it was Aaron Rodgers and then a long list of people who had really good seasons. Here's what. I found really interesting to me. There are six voters on the list who played either college or pro or both quarterback at a very high level. Okay. And I'll tell you the six. There was Paul Burmeister, Dan Orlovsky, Josh McCown, Carson Palmer, Chris Sims, and I'm missing one. I, I forget. But there are there were there were six quarterbacks on my list who played the position. How did they vote? Six to nothing for Aaron Rodgers. Like when you talk about Aaron Rodgers, I always consider when I ask you a question, particularly about quarterbacks, well, Paul was behind the curtain. Paul knows what it takes to play this position at a very high level. Same thing. I mean, Chris Sims thinks that Aaron Rodgers might have just had the best year that a quarterback ever had. And, and, and you made the point 
And whenever you whenever you say that, okay, I'm going to vote for Aaron Rodgers, let's say, then people take it like you're denigrating, uh, you know, whoever, Cooper Cup or Tom Brady or, or Joe Burrow or Jonathan Taylor. You're not in any way, shape, or form. But you can only pick one. So sometimes, and I've split my vote before, if I absolutely was so far right down the middle that I couldn't decide. But especially when I see so many quarterbacks whose opinions that I respect, Carson Palmer particularly, I really think that he's got this ability to watch a quarterback and to see things that other people don't. I think Chris Sims is excellent at it. Orlovsky, you, I just think when that is six to nothing, and again, I don't want statistics to rule the day. I really don't. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, I think you have to do it from watching the games. The most impressive single statistic is that, honestly, in the last 16 games this year, uh, for the Green Bay Packers, the last 15 that Aaron Rodgers played, 37 touchdowns, two interceptions, 70% Crazy. passing. And yeah. I just don't know that anyone has ever done that before. And so yeah. I think you can tell which way I'm leaning on my MVP. <laughs> I'm one of the 50 Associated Press voters. I'll file my ballot. Uh, to the AP on Wednesday by noon, as has been requested. Uh, and I'll write a little bit about it next week in my column. But man, and I love, and, and look, Joe Burrow, to me, deserves an asterisk of special consideration for a very simple reason. This is a team that has not won a playoff game in the last three decades. This is a team that everyone in the agent community and the veteran player community, every so many people just laugh at the Bengals. Ah, oh, they're anachronistic. They're they're the 70s Bengals. They're all this. Joe Burrow went in there and he said, Man, screw this. I don't care what anybody yeah. thinks. We're gonna win and we're gonna win right now. He'd tell anybody who was interested, I don't want to hear any excuses. We're winning here. And some of the throws he's made this year. Uh, some of the wins he's had, and look, they lost to the 49ers about a month ago, but he made one of the great throws of this NFL season, thrown across his body to a window this big, mm -hmm. to a window the size of a Rubik's Cube to Jamar Chase in the end zone. It just, there are some plays that he made that I just can't forget. I love the impact of Joe Burrow. And to go 4-0 and against the Steelers and the Ravens, the teams that yeah. have dominated this division for the last 20 years. I love Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow might be second on my list for the simple fact that he accomplished what he accomplished in Cincinnati. But, I, I, you know, I'm curious. You watch all the quarterbacks. Give yeah. me your view of Burrow. As I'm sitting here listening to you talk about Burrow, uh, first of all, I'm lining them up to the person we just talked about, Aaron Rodgers. And what stands out about both these guys, Peter, is that they're both risk takers. And I don't want people to think that, that, that they're careless, that they, but they watch their throws. They're not just checking the ball down. They're not taking the easy ones. 
they compile an extremely high rate of efficiency while pushing the ball downfield, like you said, into tight windows, and they do it all the time. It's a small thing. It's easy to say, but those two guys are not afraid, and they're not afraid on any Sunday, Monday, or Thursday they play, and I think that with their talent makes them really fun. We've talked about Joe before, and my lead with Joe Burrow is that what he had going for him at LSU all goes to the right place, and it goes to the right spot, and it goes there on time. He's doing it in the NFL. Not at the same rate of efficiency, not quite as often, but there isn't that much of a drop-off. The outstanding Joe you saw in the SEC is the really good Joe you're seeing now in the NFL. The talent level, the pressure, the fact that he's in Cincinnati, nothing changed him. Nothing took him off his game that made him outstanding at the previous level. That's what I really appreciate and respect about him. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, I want to take a, a soft right turn uh, right now to looking at Wild Card Weekend. And... The thing I'm most curious about, Paul, is I thought it would be fun if both of us took uh, uh, an underdog and this weekend in one of the six games, if both of us took an underdog and then defended the pick about why we were picking them. So let's, let's just go. I'm just going to go through each game and tell you the line on each game. And believe me, I'm not doing this for gambling purposes because I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't gamble on games, but I am just going to tell you just to say, okay, here's what people are thinking about these games. Philadelphia at Tampa Bay, Bucks favored by seven. San Francisco at Dallas, a much tighter uh, spread than I thought it would be. Uh, Dallas by three. Uh Arizona against the Rams. The Rams by four and a half. Makes sense. Pittsburgh against Kansas City. You know, Sunday night when I looked, it it opened at 14, which shocked me that the Steelers would be a 14-point dog in any game. But it opened at 14. It's now 12 and a half uh, with Kansas City. New England against Buffalo. Buffalo by four and a half. And then the Raiders against the Bengals. A little bit bigger line than I thought. 
Cincinnati by six and a half. And some of that, I would guess, is because Cincinnati is at home, rested a lot of its guys, including Burrow, who's had some knee tweakiness, and the Raiders playing a highly emotional game on Sunday night, and then uh, traveling to play a Saturday game, in a Saturday afternoon game in Cincinnati. So give me, of all the, in those six games, give me a dog that you like. My favorite dog, not only to cover Peter, Peter, but I'm taking them to win New England at Buffalo. And I've got a couple of reasons here. Number one, I go back to that scene at the end of the game a couple of weeks ago, right after Christmas, Josh Allen played so well, led the Bills to a win. And you could just see the respect and admiration Bill Belichick had for him and the way he greeted him and said congratulations after the game. I don't think Buffalo, as much as I enjoy watching them, as much as I believe in the total team, I don't know if they can win all the way through the postseason without Josh Allen being at an A level. He is such a giant part of what they do and who they are, even more than the other quarterbacks. I think some coach is going to give him a B-minus kind of game in the next three or four weeks. And I believe it's going to be Bill Belichick. And it just it started me thinking that with how much he, again, how he interacted with him after that game. He more than has his attention. And I think he's the guy that can take him a level down. And New England is just ripe for a good performance, Peter. I mean, they haven't been great three of the last four weeks. They've lost three of the four times. And I just feel like they are, like I said, ripe for a much better performance than they've had the last four weeks. And the combination of those two things that jump out to me, I've got them not only covering, but I think they go to Buffalo and win too. Yeah, I'm going to that game, and I am intrigued by that. Um, And look, I also think it helps a lot that Mac Jones played in that environment, in that weather six weeks ago, five weeks ago, whatever it was. And he won the game. Now, Mac Jones didn't do a lot in that game, obviously. But at least he knows now what the environment's going to be. And he knows also that Bill Belichick's charge to him is going to be do not turn the ball over, protect it. I just looked at the weather last night. Uh, It's probably going to be around 10 degrees, chance of snow, some wind. I mean, it's going to be in human conditions to play football, but... That's January in the north, uh, in the northeast particularly. I really like your pick on that one because I think it is almost a coin flip game. The one that I like, and it's just because in watching them play on Sunday, I started to see a team that could create a lot of problems for the Dallas Cowboys, and that's the 49ers. First of all, I believe that Uh, Kyle Shanahan is going to play this game the way he played postseason games in 2019 when the Niners were in the Super Bowl. Whether or not you can say whatever you want, he's doing it because he doesn't believe in in Jimmy Garoppolo. Whatever the reason is, Garoppolo played well down the stretch in overcoming a double-digit deficit in uh, in a playoff-type game. Uh, against the Rams, played fantastic in that game. But it's also the fact that I believe the 49ers in that game are going to be able to run the ball with a guy who was on nobody's radar at the beginning of the year, Elijah Mitchell. 
And I think they could play a ball possession game, keep it for 35, 36 minutes. Why, why is that important? Because you want to keep the ball away from Dak Prescott in this game. Obviously, they have an explosive offense. They're happy playing a game in the 30s because they think they can outscore you. They had a great offensive year. Two of the last three games, even though the, the Philly game doesn't count because Philadelphia was playing a lot of backups. But two of the last three games, they've scored 50 points. So I think logic says that Dallas is going to roll through this game. I kind of like the Niners. Shanahan has been there. I think he'll know how to play this game. So anyway, those are those are two uh, two of our, our favorite upsets in that game. Paul, I want to hit on two other things quick if we can. So it's been widely discussed, the end of the Raiders-Chargers game. Uh, Brandon Staley has been widely panned for calling a timeout with 38 seconds in the game when in, in overtime, when if it did stay tied, both teams would go to the playoffs. I want to hear, A, about sort of the scintillating part of this game and what you thought watching it, and B, what you thought of the strategy. Game was awesome. I think I've said a couple of times here, Peter, about certain games. I wish it would have been eight quarters. I mean, it's the kind of game you just want to keep watching and have it keep going. Uh, but as far as kind of like the main part or the, the main discussion part, still a couple of days later about the timeout late, uh, I had two strong feelings. I'm going to kind of take the long way here, Peter. I woke up this morning and I hadn't listened to, to Brandon Staley. I'd, I'd read about it a little bit, but I hadn't really sat and watched his comments and listened to them after the game. So I went back and listened and his explanation made perfect sense. I'm like, you know what? He's just playing to win. He called a timeout. He knew they were going to run. He wanted his best run formation or run personnel out there. I'm with him. I'm not going to beat this guy up about that. Then I went back, Peter, and I watched the end of the game in real time three or four times. And I completely came to the other side in the sense that there was a feel. There was a feel in this game at the end that the Raiders, they weren't taking a knee, but they weren't taking charge of the run game. They weren't executing the run game to get to the 30 to get uh, or to kick a field goal. You watch out of the two minute warning. And I put a lot of stock into this, Peter, because at the two minute, they clearly went to the sideline and came back with a plan. And you watch the way Josh Jacobs carried the ball the first time out of the two-minute warning. It was one step ahead of take a knee. It was as soon as there were people around him, put both hands on the ball, just don't fumble. And I think that was kind of the message. That was what they were going to do. And once the timeout was called, it got in the way of the natural flow of the game. It stopped that feel that even though they weren't taking a knee, they weren't hair on fire, sense of urgency, you've got to get this first down. And once they sent them to the sideline, you watch Derek Carr. He interacted with, with Greg Olson, the offensive coordinator, in a way that said to me, let's do this. Let's, let's, let's call a play. Let's get some sense of urgency out there. I think they kind of regathered themselves. And that timeout stopped the flow that was working in their favor. So I've been on both sides here this morning, but the side I'm standing on now, after listening to Brandon and watching the end of the game again, I think that was a mistake because there was a real feel and he got in the way of that feel and interrupting it and stopping it led to them losing that game. 
All right, I'm going to argue with you on this, and that is I've also watched the end of the game, and I don't deny what you're saying about Josh Jacobs, but here's the question I would ask you. So with, they they definitely weren't going to kneel because Carr was in shotgun just as, you know, as the clock winds down, I think there were maybe eight seconds to go on the play clock or seven when that timeout was called. So you're right. The Raiders were not hurrying to make plays right there, which is interesting. But I think the reason why they weren't hurrying, Paul, is that it was third and four, okay, with 38 seconds to go when the timeout was called, okay? The reason why, in my opinion, that they that on the next play, Josh Jacobs ran with his hair on fire is very, very mm-hmm. simple because the Raiders are now thinking, okay, they called a timeout. You know what they want? They want to have one timeout left or maybe even no timeouts left. And if we choose to kick, let's say, a 55-yard field goal with one of the best clutch kickers in football, they want to have 25 seconds left on the clock so that they can give one of the best deep throwers in the NFL four shots to get in field goal range, uh, you know, in the last 25 seconds. So to me, if, if I am Brandon Staley and I'm trying to think of this in real time, but be, understand, thinking about this in real time, no coach in NFL history ever, ever, ever has had to think in the last two minutes of a game that means whether you're going to the playoffs or not going. Practically, I don't think anyone has ever had to think of it, period. That, right. hey, it's best if we play for a tie here, but I, we don't want to play for a tie. We're competitors. We do this. And so, look, Paul, the only thing I'm saying is that whether... If, if let's say Josh Jacobs gains four yards on that last play, and then the Chargers then, again, call their last timeout. It turned out they gained 10, and then the Raiders ended up calling a timeout. But let's say they called four. Uh, they gained four. And now if you're Brandon Staley, in my opinion, Brandon Staley right then would have called another timeout. So let's say with... 27 seconds to go, let's say. Uh, Carlson would have been on the field to kick a, I think, 54-yard field goal, a try a 54-yard field goal. And then with 22 seconds to go, or whatever, 24 seconds to go, then uh, the Chargers would have gotten the ball back with a chance, a chance. They would have had to get 45 yards in three plays. So who knows? You can say, oh, they'll never do that. Justin Herbert is the quarterback. It is a two-hour conversation. There's yes. tremendous <laughs> if ifs, buts, and all that stuff. So that's the that's the way you thought. I'm interested in that. That's the way I thought. We're gonna end it just with one final quick question, opinion for each of us. As we sit here right now, as you sit here this moment and you look down the road. Okay, I want you to pick one team that nobody thinks is going to win the Super Bowl that you think has a heck 
of a shot to win the Super Bowl? Boy, one team that could surprise get to the Super Bowl. You want me to give you mine first while you think? You want me to give you mine first? That would be a good assist. It's not going to surprise. It's not. It's not going to surprise you, but I'm going to say Cincinnati. Um, okay. You know, they've already proven, they've already proven in going 4-0 and against the Steelers and the Ravens and then beating Kansas City at home late. Uh, they've already proven, in my opinion, that Joe Burrow again, over and over again, is not afraid of the big moments and can play at a high level in the big moments. And look, I think every team in the AFC is flawed. Everyone. I think the Bengals have a shot, Paul. I'm going to go back to the uh, 81 Super Bowl, and I'm going to pick the Niners opposite of your Bengals. Or was that 82? It was sometime in the early 80s. Uh, but I think there's really yeah. something too, Peter, the fact that you have to play playoff kind of football uh, in late December, early January, once you arrive to the playoffs, to have that momentum on your side. I think they have that against Dallas this weekend. So like you, I wouldn't be hugely surprised if they won this weekend. And then you look at, do you have to, or in the NFC, you have to find a way to beat the Packers. And that's probably a 17 to 16, 21, 20 kind of game. I think the Niners and Kyle Shanahan and Jimmy Garoppolo, who I still believe is underrated. I think they're comfortable in that kind of environment. So for a surprise pick, 49ers on the NFC side, I, I wouldn't be shocked at all. Paul, thanks so much for all of your knowledge this week. Thanks for voting in my uh, in my poll. And uh, thanks for the explanation for Aaron Rodgers. Uh, thanks for everything and always being there for me and for the listeners of this podcast. I'm going to take you now to my conversation with Rich Eisen of NFL Network. It's always fun to talk to Rich. A wide variety of topics to get to with the maestro of NFL Network. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Rich Eisen, at such an eventful time of year, thanks so much for joining me. Anytime for you, Peter, you know that. Hey, so, uh, you know, I, I the one thing that really sticks out that I knew when you were going to be on the pod that I had to ask you about is all about Jim Harbaugh. 
And, you know, I wonder if what sort of Michigan man inside information is you, (laughs) do you have about from one Wolverine to another? What what do you think is going to happen to Harbaugh? I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm trying to guess which, which one is the job that, um, um, that he'd be targeting. And the one that jumps out at me would be the Raiders, um, where, uh, he, you know, probably thought never in a million years would that job be open. And then, you know, Gruden's gone. It's now available to him, um, that it would be a situation where, you know, he, he has a quarterback, he could bring his own, um, in, you know, personnel guy. Cause I imagine they'd clean the whole house, you know, and that would be, unfortunate for my friend Mike Mayock um who I think's done a pretty darn good job with that team right. that you know if you never know you give credit to whom for drafting whom with Gruden and him uh but you take a look at this past Sunday night Josh Jacobs ran it Renfro caught it Crosby ran quarterbacks down Daniel Carson Daniel Carlson, uh, Carlson kicked it uh, I mean, there's a lot of people that Mayock brought in there that just won a, 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 you know, a game that put the Raiders in the playoffs. But that would be the one to me that he he would be interested in because uh, he didn't know at least a couple weeks ago. He just sensed that the Bears would get rid of Nagy, but that didn't know that they would clean Total House. So I, I don't know which situation he'd be interested in and whether they'd be interested in him. Uh, or this is something that I wouldn't blame him for doing, which is, you know, you took a chunk out of me after, uh, you know, after the last couple of years. Uh, now I did what I, I set out to do, which was beat Ohio State, win the Big Ten championship and begin to get a lot of blue chip prospects. And you could see the the team is much faster and more talented this year than past. So I, I don't know if that's just a money play or or none of this is anything except um, rumor and conjecture that for whatever reason he hasn't publicly tamped down. My feeling overall is that, I mean, if I were him, mm-hmm. I would want to know one thing. Uh, I, well, I would want to know one thing about him. What does he think of Justin Fields? I mean, yeah. he clearly would know more than yes, yeah, there about yeah. Justin Fields. Yeah. So I would want to know what he thinks of him. And if he thinks that he's really good and that, hey, look, in 2011, Jim Harbaugh basically went to Nevada and scouted Colin Kaepernick. And I'm not saying fell in love with him, but he fell in like with him. Mm-hmm. And, and that became for a while a beautiful relationship. And so I would really want to know what he thought of Justin Fields you know, when he had to face him. And, and if I liked him, I mean, you know, Michigan and, and going back to Michigan uh, for him must have been really cool. Can you imagine the full circle-ness of going back to your alma mater and mm-hmm. going back to the team that made you a first-round pick? I know. And, and coaching them both to success? And then the quarterback, know. the quarterback you get was one of the one of the quarterbacks who was from Ohio State, which is even more in that regard. And 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 that's why I said on my show this week that in terms of a fit, Peter, you know, uh, he brings 
to the table in Chicago, what he brought to the table for, for me. And, you know, if I got up, I was, if I wasn't tethered to everything here, I'd, I'd show you the, well, I'll do it anyway. Hold on one second. Yeah. Let's see it. Whatever it is. <laughs> so this is on the wall of my office. Hang on, let me plug my ear back in now. This is off the wall. I'll put it back on later, obviously. So this is me on the side of uh, representing Michigan. I was an honorary captain. Jim made me an honorary captain wow. in 2016. There I am. Jake, Jake Booty's up there and, uh, uh -huh. um, you know, Josh Booty, pardon me, and, and a bunch of others that were there. And Pretty cool. You know, what was like, the game against? It was against Central Florida. Uh, yeah. The uh, Griffin brothers were, were actually wow. I was walking out to them right there. And, yeah. uh, you know, Jim inscribed it, you know, it was an honor to share the sideline. And it was one of the greatest weekends of my entire life being out there for a coin toss. And, wow. you know, I'll never forget this story. So Harbaugh, he could not have been more gracious. Like I had friends, he's like, bring whoever you want. And we were, we were let in on everything, training table, um, eating with the team, uh, movie night. They watched eight mile the night before, uh, mm -hmm. watching him talk to the team before he had me talk to the team. I blacked out essentially talking to them. <laughs> and, um, and I'll never forget this moment, uh, <laughs> you know, walking out there for that, for that midfield moment there. And, um, just a hundred thousand people, they mentioned my name and it was polite applause when they hear my name, but when it's a hundred thousand people giving polite applause, it was the loudest ovation I've ever heard in my entire life. And, um, you know, I, I remember, you know, getting out there and one of them, uh, one of them looked at me, one of the players looked at me and goes, did he say heads or tails? And I'm like, what, like, what are you talking about? You know, I, I said, I, I think I, I heard him say tails. And I thought to myself, I didn't think this honorary captaincy had an actual job to it. <laughs> you know, I'm just here for the ride, fellas. Like, it's your job to listen to the coach. And anyway, so we call it in the air and they, whatever. And, and it, it, as it turned out, it was the visiting team that gets to call it in the air anyway. But Harbaugh told them which way he wanted to go if we won the toss or lost it or what have you. And I remember just going back to the sideline, thinking to myself, you know, um, did I get it right? Like, did I point to the right direction? Like, it's really their thought anyway. And Harbaugh had his hands on his khakis, You're already staring out. He was in game face mode as I'm walking back and I'm thinking to myself, did I get it wrong? I'm like, oh no, what's he going to say to me? And all he did was he just snapped to it out of like the, the game face with a big smile on his face. He goes, nice ovation. Like that. <laughs> And it was honest, like I said, the, one of the greatest weekends of my life, but I, I bring all of that up to mention that uh, he brought to Michigan what we needed, which was the fan base needed one of our own to come back someone who we knew understood us and knew what had happened before and knew what it took and knew what we expected as a fan base and, and wanted as a fan base and he could bring that to Chicago. I mean, everybody's hoping for the Dicka years to come back. Um, and who better than the guy who would, you know, yell back at Ditka, you know, whatever Ditka. Would people in Ann Arbor be ticked off if he left? No, I don't think so. I, I, I honestly don't think so. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be. I, I wouldn't be. It's just like, hey, man, he, he, he didn't, you know, have to come back to Michigan either. I mean, the guy obviously had run his course in San Francisco. He'd, he's a Super Bowl 
you know, head coach, you know? And so uh, if this is what he wants to do and this is what makes him happy to do, well then, you know, as much as I'd wanted more big 10 championships than just this one, you know, uh, then, then we would just be left to wonder who's next. I, I don't know who that would be. And, um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that he does, does return because I'd love to see him finish and be one of those teams that's out there for the final game as opposed to the semifinal. Um, let's touch on the other events of the day in the NFL, if you don't mind. The first is, should we be outraged at Brian Flores getting fired after finishing eight and one this season, after going four and two against the arch rival Patriots in his three years, uh, after seeming to have this team going in the right direction and 16 hours after he beats uh, the dreaded Bill Belichick right in their home stadium, he gets whacked? Or should we wait and see for the evidence as to why this was such a difficult environment that either he created or he worked in? I mean, we're where do you stand on Flores? That's a good question. I don't know. Do you? I mean, like, because no. I think we do have to wait. I don't know who we're going to find out from because wherever Brian Flores winds up, we'll get the I've turned the page. And wherever the Dolphins hire somebody, you'll hear they've turned the page. So I don't know who's going to tell us what's on the page other than what Stephen Ross said, which was that communication was a problem. And, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, man. I mean, you know, and Stephen Ross says his name everywhere on my campus where Harbaugh works, but that's on the owner. I mean, an owner has to make sure that everybody's talking, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 you know, you never, you never hear that uh, with championship teams. I guess the only one that you'd have to say that you've heard that sort of stuff from, from a team that wins more often than not was green Bay in the last, you know, off season or two based on Gouda Kunst and, and green Bay and, and Aaron Rodgers and Mark Murphy saying, you know, it was a difficult, complicated fella and all that sort of stuff. And then they put it together and they're 13 and four, another 13 win season. So I, I don't know, like what, what, what would be the communication problem between a coach and a, and a general manager if this GM had hired the coach. So I, I don't know what had happened there. Uh, yeah. It is bizarre. There's always a surprise. And this one was the surprise. Um, and, you know, let's find out where Flores goes next. And, and I guess we'll find out from, you know, other reporters that might uh, really dig into it. You know, the thing that would really bother me about this is if I were a fan of the Dolphins, I think, and I know a couple of Dolphins fans, one of them texted me this week and said, the only reason why I'm really outraged is that I honestly felt that no matter who we were playing now, we have a chance. And I haven't felt that way for a long time. And he said, that's why I'm really kind of ticked off about this. And, and, you know, Rich, I think there are some signs that I don't like. I don't like having, and I believe I'm correct when I say this, 10 combined offensive line coaches, offensive coordinators, and quarterback coaches, 10 of those in three years. That's that's bad. Right. That's that's really, really bad. I mean, one of the biggest, yeah. you know, most, I, I guess, picked up uh, items from my show this this fall, Peter, was Trent 
Dilford coming on and talking about Tua having multiple, you know, having um, uh, in his ear, uh, Charlie Fry in his ear and um, calling plays and in his ear. And Fry is not known as the offensive coordinator. There was a co-offensive coordinator. And everyone's like, how many coordinators can you possibly have? Like how many people are in the ear of your star quarterback do you want to have and yeah and, and Trent identified it as as somebody who wasn't assumed to be in his ear and it was brought to Flores like you know how functional is something like this and um I don't think they got an answer because you know Flores comes from the Belichick world of just we're just going to yeah. bring the curtain down on a lot of this yeah. stuff but the bottom line is this Peter um you know uh, I, I think you could figure it all out that it has to come from the draft I would think it has to come from the drafting of Tua over Herbert. Who made that decision and why? And and why did the owner um, sit down with Deshaun Watson? Why would he face-to-face with a guy right before trade deadline? I mean, why, why would that happen? Why did this story that Charles Robinson of Yahoo uh, report well out uh, two weeks before the season saying that they were kicking the tires on Deshaun Watson then with his legal problems still an open question, the owner weeks later is going to ask permission to speak with the guy. I mean, and then you put that all back together and that's in the hands of the coach who then did so to the tune of a seven game win streak. The first to ever happen in the same season as a seven game losing streak. If you had to point to anything, I think it would have to be this. It's something about, I don't know. Rich, you know, let's, let me ask you my sort of pet peevish question about Deshaun Watson. Let's say for the sake of argument that John Schneider and Pete Carroll, uh, you know, are still there. I definitely think Schneider will be, and I think Pete probably will be in Seattle. And imagine that they stick to their guns and don't trade Russell Wilson. And then imagine that uh, uh, Aaron Rodgers and his new BFF, Brian Gutekunst, uh, do the Glasnost thing, and they are there for the foreseeable future, at least one more year. And then let's imagine that the only guy out there who's really worth a significant investment in, both in draft capital and money, is Deshaun Watson. My And the reason I say pet peeve is I cannot believe that Deshaun Watson and his camp still have this huge sword of Damocles hanging over their head. Why they didn't just sign whatever check they needed to sign. Uh, Why they are not, you know, you got 22 women against you. Some of them, I'm sure, are basically saying, I am in this to the bitter end with this guy. Mm -hmm. And why you don't do everything in your power to settle this a long time ago. Because now he not only ruined... 2021 for himself he's on his way to ruining 2022 for himself i don't know these that's another big mystery that's another huge mystery and uh, again if i'm running a team there's no way i twitch in the direction of giving up any treasure capital draft picks whatever uh until this gets resolved in a manner that allows me to take a look at what happened and Will it happen again? And 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 is it worth having somebody uh, on my team, regardless of how sterling a reputation he had before all of this came out? To be very honest with you, um, 
but you just also painted a fascinating picture that there would be no room at the Seattle Inn and <laughs> no movement uh, from the Green Bay spot. And I think you're right about Green Bay. That would be fascinating if Seattle just stays put. And I did mention that again on my show a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, what? What? You know, they got Russell under contract. Pete is paid out till 2025. Like, you know, you just run it back. And the question is, is, you know, can they all coexist? I think we're all assuming that they can't. Um, I don't know if that assumption is uh, assumption is safe or unfounded. But one one scenario that I think does fascinate me, Peter, that nobody's talking about right now, because we're all focused on the here and now because of what the past has all been about. And that's Roethlisberger staying around for one more game and the fascinating aspect and how that happened, you know, and how the Steelers stayed alive for the playoffs with that home win in front of the folks where he pulled a Cal Ripken going around the circumference of the stadium and slapping hands and then you know, the whole overtime win against the Ravens and then the tie that could have sent two teams into the playoffs but didn't, one of the most fascinating endings of any games, let alone a season ender. But what are the Steelers' plans? What are they going to do? Because it ain't Mason Rudolph. And, no. you know... Uh, it's not Dwayne Haskins. I, I mean, they didn't activate him. I mean, they, they might, they might, I don't know. I mean, he wasn't even dressed for most of his games. They don't so, have their quarterback of the future on the roster. So then, and so plus, then, why not? I mean, who better to basically say, "I will take Deshaun Watson, and we will figure this out, and we will win games." Than maybe Mike Tomlin and the Steelers. You know, maybe, but I, be a perfect you know, spot for him. I, I don't. I don't know that. First of all, in my opinion, the team that will be the most desperate and will pay the most for him is Carolina. I don't. I think they'd pay three ones plus. I don't know what plus is, but even though they know that they might not have them on their team till 2023, but, but, but anyway, be that as it may, I am totally fascinated by the Steelers. Can I tell you a quick story, Rich, and get a kick out of this? And, sure. I and then, and then there's, and then they're just news just broke, Peter. I don't know if you want to what handle is this sort of stuff in your podcast, but the giants just fired Joe judge. Wow. Wow. That just came across my phone here, brother. That's that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. They did. They you know, I, I, okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you this real quick, and then you and I, sure. let's exchange one Try thought. Sure. So the other day, you know, I'm going to write my column on Monday. So after Roethlisberger does what he does, completes fourth and eight, I text Burt Lawton, the Steelers PR guy, and said, I haven't talked to Ben in two years. And, you know, he's not one of these guys, you know, I can call a lot of people after games and get them on the phone, but, you know, Roethlisberger has never really kind of been into it, you know, and not that, not that he's been rude about it or anything like that, but there are some guys who I know I got a good chance of getting and Roethlisberger has never been one of those guys. I just felt that I had a very good chance of getting, but I told Bert Lawton, I really want him. And, and I, uh, you know, this is the only time I'll ask for him, all that stuff, you know? So at the end of the day, I had to wait and wait and wait. And finally, Bert says, he's going to call you, but it'll be when we get back to Pittsburgh. So at about 10 of eight Sunday night, Eastern time, Lawton called or uh, Roethlisberger just called me and he goes, Hey, I'm sorry. It took so long. But when I got back to Pittsburgh, I had to take my drug test. Hmm. I said, are you kidding me? I, after a game and everything like that. And he goes, Hey, listen, 
I, he said, you know, all I have to do is pull up my shirt and show somebody I am not on steroids, you know? And so, but, but anyway, so then we ended up talking and I'll tell you, Rich, he is so This is the happiest I've ever heard him in yeah. my life, you know, to have this bonus, even though you got to go to Kansas city, you know, but it's the coolest thing that he gets one last shot. Yeah. And, um, with house money, man, it's all house money. And then that kid behind him is, uh, is, is a nice wild card for super wild card weekend too. Cause if that kid, Najee Harris has a game, yes. you'd never, ever, ever know. And you know, the other thing about that game that fascinates me is, um, how, how Kansas city earned it was a defensive play Melvin on Melvin violence Ingram on Gordon in Denver. And we all know Melvin Ingram was the famed, I want hostage. I want uh, volunteers, not hostages is what Mike Tomlin said this year when yeah. Ingram got sent from Pittsburgh to, to Kansas city. And it's just going to be a fun game. And, you know, um, I, 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 I can't wait for that one. I really can't. Let's end this by each having an opinion on Joe judge. Sure. And I'll read you the statement that John Mara issued within the last few minutes. Okay. Go for it. Steve Tish and I both believe it's in the best interest of our franchise to move in another direction. We met with Joe yesterday afternoon to discuss the state of the team. I met again with Joe this afternoon and it was during that conversation. I informed Joe of our decision. We appreciate Joe's efforts on behalf of the organization. I said before the season started that I wanted to feel good about the direction we were headed when we played our last game of the season. Unfortunately, I cannot make that statement, which is why we have made this decision. We will hire a general manager and that person will lead the effort to hire a new head coach. Rich, exactly two years ago, give or take a week or so, right after they hired Joe Judge, I got on the phone with John Marin, a you know, half hour conversation about why he reached this conclusion to hire Joe Judge. And he talked about what he liked about him, everything like that. But he said one thing to me, he goes, Peter, I am not going to have a quick trigger finger this time. That This has really hurt us, where we don't give guys enough of a chance to put their stamp on the team and to really do it. I'm going to give Joe Judge that chance. So imagine what it must have taken for John Mara to have made that decision. And in my opinion, because listen, I, I've only talked to Joe judge a few times. Seems like right. a, a nice, nice guy, guy, earnest, yeah. all yeah. that. Right. But that statement he made for 11 minutes after they lost uh, last week. So now it would be nine days ago. That to me, I'm not, I, I don't know if I should call it reprehensible, but what really ticked me off about it is that they just lost to a five-win team by 26 points, were totally uncompetitive. They made one of the worst special teams plays in history. You let a ball bounce at the three-yard line, and you don't touch it until it's, it's too late. And all these things. And then he stands up after that game and says, what a great culture I'm building. And he throws about five other people under the bus in the process of doing it. Bush league, well, wrong uh, thing to do. And, so. and, and, and his, his, uh, the, the, the wins and losses, the manner in which they, they lost uh, the last three weeks 
non-competitive. Um, and, and then his and then his his comments after that loss that you're talking about, where he mm-hmm. also mentioned how he, he knows how dire a situation is. Uh, because he remembers when the Patriots were seven and two, they all thought they were getting fired. And you mentioned about it was the middle of the 2018 season and they wound up winning the Super Bowl. And I, I, I don't know how Belichick runs his shop. Does he make everyone think they're on thin ice that they're all going to get fired? I, I, I don't know. It just, it just made no sense. It, you know how you're sometimes at a dinner party and you ask somebody, you know, like, what do you do for a living? And they say marketing. And then you ask them five more questions about what that marketing job is. And you still have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Cause you get all these <laughs> words, you know, it's like a word salad. You get all you, yeah. or you're in a meeting and that's like, and you're talking about like, hey, let's do, let's give each other some homework afterwards. Here are the three things of the action items that we're going to have. And then you walk out of that meeting and you're like, actually, I don't, I don't recall. I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now. Like I, I didn't, that's was Joe's judges comments after games the last two, three yeah. weeks. That's what I felt like. And it, it just felt like a, a coaching word salad with a certain yes. cadence that you would expect of an authoritarian person who's got a full grasp on things. And it seemed like he had no grasp on things, but to me, the end was, uh, you know, him talking about what type of stamp he wants to put on things and how he wanted a stamp John Mara put on his team. The stamp of having um, Jake Fromm, okay, whose oh. school just won the national championship, having Jake Fromm take some sort of reverse, like uh, it, it's not a victory formation. It was actually a defeat formation. I've never yeah. seen it before inside your own five yard line of a three nothing game with five minutes to go in the first half where you don't even run the ball so you could punt it. You don't even give yourself a chance to get a first down. You don't, you basically say, I don't have a professional football outfit in which to uh, execute a pass play. And um, that doesn't happen in professional football. And the minute I saw that from, from, from Joe judges giants or Freddie kitchens offense, like, why is that play even in the book? Like, what are we even talking yeah. about? Like if I was an owner of a team, I, 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 I would have a, that that's a vote of no confidence for me. So back to square one there. And and who knew the jets would be the more stable franchise in New York city uh, with hey, potentially a better future. Who, who thought, but that's the case right now. The giants coaches who John Maris hired in the last Ben McAdoo, Ben McAdoo, Pat Shermer and Joe judge. I mean, I mean, dude. he needs to get out of the coach hiring business period. You know, he did say good for him that the GM is going to lead this search. And the GM needs to pick the coach. That's all I can say. You know, no one is going to have any faith in John Mara to pick a coach. I like John Mara, but holy cow, he is, he is gone to the rear of the class with these three picks and nothing against any of these guys personally, but man, that, that is, that is a murderer's row of bad hires. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Rich Eisen, thanks so much for taking all this time and for breaking some news in the middle of it. There you go, man. Well, I didn't break any news. I just looked down at my phone that kept buzzing for some reason, (laughs) and I realized why. So I figured I'd let you know. All the best to you. Thanks. Same to you, Peter. My thanks, as usual, to Paul Burmeister for uh, co-directing this podcast with me. We always have such a good time talking NFL and to Rich Eisen of NFL Network for his knowledge, for his insight on all things NFL. Appreciate everybody listening. We'll look forward to chopping it up about the six wild card games this weekend and looking forward to the divisional round 
in the second week of the playoffs. Thanks so much for listening to the Peter King Podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.